don't aim to solve all the world's problems, but we do offer you peace of mind, hope, laughter, and ideas on how you can help improve circumstances and communities. Good change is for you. For us, we take to heart your concerns about anger, injustice, and helplessness, the pain that we each feel, and give you something better to witness, something better to believe in. In many ways, this podcast is the opposite of self-help. It's us help. We draw attention to kindness, to the better angels of our nature. We swap stories that bring smiles, deep breaths, inspiration, and ideas to help us evolve. We introduce you to people who are positively transforming lives, leaders of movements, or everyday heroes who are making change. Good change. Good change highlights the common ground we share, the unlimited positive impact of a single person, and the greater good. Welcome to Good Change, a podcast about making a world of difference. Please welcome your host and good change maker, Ken Streeter. I'm here today with a, a good old friend of mine. Dag it, it makes us kind of old when I think about it. We've been together for 40 years. Uh, Jib Ellison is the founder of Project Raft. Uh, he's the founder of Blue Sky, which is a sustainability consulting company that we'll talk more about. Uh, all around uh, international travel aficionado. He's actually coming to us today from Trancones, Mexico. And uh, above and beneath it all, a good, good old friend of mine. So Jib, we're glad to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here, Ken. And you're down in uh, Mexico with your daughter, and she's taking Spanish, and so she's got a com complete immersion going on? Yeah, exactly. We, uh, when we realized she's in a school, uh, a college, that she takes one class at a time, which I think is actually a really good model for three and a half weeks. So it's an immersive class environment. And when we realized she couldn't actually do that at school, and she was going to be sitting at home on a Zoom call, uh, we said, well, let's just take the whole thing down to some place where everybody speaks Spanish and we're in a little village here and the vast majority of people, in fact, the people who work in and around us here are only speak Spanish. So it's perfect. Linda, que linda. And, uh, and I can't hear it, but you've said you can hear the ocean in the background from where you're sitting. Yeah. Yeah, totally here. Take a, take a gander. Oh, Nice. So I don't see many of those thatched roofs in like Northern California or Central Oregon. That's a that's unique to the tropics. I'm taking it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Although uh, in the old days, I'm sure that was how they did roofs in and around at least Northern California, because they didn't have they didn't have all the stuff they have here. And sod roofs in the Northern countries. Uh, so speaking of the Northern countries. When you were a, a young buck, uh, we spent time together down on the Kern River. You were managing that operation, and I was a river guide. And uh, the name of the place that we stayed in was The Dump. You might remember that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah, you are remembering that correctly. <laughs> and how many bedrooms and how many people lived there? It was two bedrooms. Uh, I think, at, you know, maximum capacity, we probably had 40 people living in and out of there. And it was a time when before most river guides had their own vehicles, much less um, camper vans and everything that people seem to have today. So uh, needless to say, it was a fool's errand. It had one bath. Yep. It was a fool's errand uh, trying to keep, keep it in order. So all, all we really could do um, was carve out a, a, a room for an office that kept some semblance of order so people could come in and actually see what trips they were going to be on. And again, this is, this is way back before the internet days. So everything was analog, handwritten, you know, trying to figure out where people were and how they were getting there. And, you know, it was quite, quite a logistical time. So uh, you had a rule there, and I can't remember what the rule was, but it was a rule about rules. And uh, we were talking about that a couple of years ago. And it's like, don't make a rule that is easy to break. Is that, am I remembering that right? Or That sounds good. I, it wouldn't surprise me if I made a rule about rules. That, <laughs> that would be right up my 
my alley. <laughs> you know, don't create a, well, well, one thing for sure, don't create a rule that you're not prepared if you're the rule creator to hold. Yeah, right on. I mean, right. for sure. That, and, and, that makes a lot of sense. And have you followed that uh, almost to a T for your whole adult life? Hence why I, I don't make a lot of rules. <laughs> <laughs> Good thinking. Like, like take, yeah. out, take out the trash once a week. Is that is that the kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the right thing. Yeah. Or or they're or they're vague. Actually, I I do like to be very quite serious actually and somewhat philosophical. I I, I like directionally correct rules that require some thought and some interpretation versus take out the trash mm. on Tuesdays at eight a.m. Mm. Um, that does exactly the opposite. It creates a, a condition in which there's no thought, but, you know, do the right thing, mm. which is a good rule. It's a good principle. It's more principle than a rule. Um, actually requires some consideration on behalf of the rule follower or the principle follower. And, uh, and I think we live in a time, at least, you know, where, where I live in Sonoma County, most of the time, you know, there's so many rules. Like if you want to work on your house, I mean, there are more rules and more permits and more stuff required. And then you come down here to Mexico and where there's very few rules as, as this guy we met yesterday said, I, I kind of love this. He goes, well, good, good thing about Mexico. When you uh, own a piece of property here, you can build lot line to lot line. You can do pretty much whatever you want. Then he said, bad news about Mexico <laughs> is your neighbor can build <laughs> lot line to lot line yeah. and do whatever they want. So, uh, so is, a, is, anyway. a, is a cornerstone to the idea that you like to have rules that require some thought, is that that, that then emboldens ownership and they may yeah. take the rule more seriously? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, people want a sense of um, control, control over their lives mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and that they have some, whether or not, you know, we do have free will and all these sorts of philosoph deeper philosophical questions aside, we have the perception that we make choices. And so I think the more people are given opportunities to make those choices, um, the better. And the more we take away choice from people, we, we do so actually at, our, at the peril of, of communities and, and, and families and everything else, actually. Is that, do you see that as a, a, a primary cause of why we're struggling as much as we are on, on uh, different levels, different operational or philosophical levels? You know, I think that's a very big question. We've got an one, hour and a half. One, got yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one that I'm not prepared to. No, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I know less and less as I get older and older, uh, really. I mean, I have intuitions. And I think that that probably has something to do with it. I think there's a lot of factors to the, the disquiet, the dis-ease of our time. Um, mm. And that, that's probably one of them, though. I think people feel less and less in control of their lives. Mm -hmm. and, Speaking uh, of that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw on an example of the dump uh, and, and dis-ease and discomfort and uh, not feeling in control. And that maybe this is a good... A way for people to understand what it was like living there. So I, I slept generally on the top of a bus on a luggage rack in the bus on the driveway. And one morning I woke up to, I, we're not going to name him. You might be able to guess who it is, but woke up to a guy mumbling and grumbling back in the alley behind the house. And uh, I sat up and I looked and here's this guy walking back and forth in the alley without any pants on. And I said, Hey, hey what's going on? What's going on? He said, uh, I can't find my pants. And uh, so he ended up having to wear a different pair of pants. Somebody did something to his pants and he couldn't find them. And to this day, I don't know why he had his pants off, but he couldn't find his pants. So, so. Uh, 
Yeah, there, there's a lot of things got lost, lost in that in that in that shuffle. I mean, we should explain the dump was called the dump because it was just filled with stuff and people and like the 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 amount of like mayonnaises and mustards in the refrigerator. I mean, there must have been fifty, you know, half used mustards in that refrigerator at any given time because you know every trip that would come off, we had a trip almost every day going out, at least one, if not two going out and one two day trip coming back in. And again, often maybe two or three trips coming back. So it was a constant rotation of guides, and people and stuff. And, and, and it was just, it was, and we didn't have, you know, we had Marge and Bob, yeah, and Marge, you know, kind of trying to be only adults on the, on the, <laughs> <laughs> in residence i mean we were also i mean i was managing a multi probably a million dollar operation a multi-million dollar operation i was like i was 19 years old or something i was 20 well, how old are you you must be like 16 no i think i'm a little older than you but i wasn't very much older than 20 i was uh yeah yeah it, it was, we were young and and uh <laughs> full of vim and vigor and uh, yeah. it was a great a great way to spend a lot of years. enthusiasm yeah 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 so um speaking of young at that young age uh, you went to reed college and created a project for reed college that ended up being project raft which is an acronym for russians and americans for teamwork uh, tell us about how did that idea pop into your head and what were the first two or three major things you had to do yeah. Um, well, I was a, a philosophy major at Reed College, and my thesis, even though I was an undergraduate, we had to write a thesis at that place. And um, my thesis advisor, his, his specialty was nuclear deterrence theory. And little known fact, you know, right in the height of the Cold War between the then Soviet Union and the United States, um, there was a a doctrine of deterrence. Uh, so basically that the doctrine of deterrence is if I have a gun that's as big as your gun, you're not going to shoot me because I'm going to shoot you and your, your, you know, somebody next to you. And so the problem with the doctrine of deterrence from a kind of a logic and philosophical is it, 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 you always have an upper hand if you have a bigger gun or a faster gun, et cetera. So it led to this, this Cold War nuclear arms race. And this is in the early 80s, mid 80s. And we, the United States and the Soviet Union, were just locked in this perpetual investment of billions and billions of dollars and ever more powerful bombs and more complicated bombs and bombs that you put on submarines, bombs that you, you put on the back of trucks and all in service of telling our enemies, look, you're, don't, don't mess with us because we'll blast you to kingdom come. But the problem was, of course, they could do the same to us. And everyone was always worried about, you know, the kind of the, the first strike. So my professor was a, was a, oh, the other thing is the people outlining these doctrines that were in the Pentagon and the equivalent in the Soviet Union were academic philosophers. <laughs> Turns out wow. it was so bloody complicated. Uh, so he was in this group. He was one of the more liberal um, characters in this small crew of academic philosophers who really leaned into this stuff. So I took a senior seminar on nuclear deterrence theory and became so terrified that everything I knew and loved could be gone in a moment's notice because of just a, a stupid mistake because it was on a hair's trigger. Mm. And, um, and really in one fell swoop, I, I even remember the moment I, I kind of moved from being at the time I probably was 19 or 20, maybe 21, somewhere in that range. Um, from being kind of a self-centered river guide, kind of like young person to an activist of some sort. 
Like I, I needed to do something. And then I was like, okay, well, what can I do? I, I really, I have no money. I have no job, so to speak. I'm a river guide. That's not like, as, as you know, that's not a real job. Um, and I can't imagine like being inside and like being on phones or, you know, working in an office. So what can I do? Oh, well, I know how to do one thing really good. It's run these river trips. So maybe, and river trips have this natural quality of bringing people together. And like, you can learn about somebody in a two day overnight river trip that could take you years as a neighbor in a neighborhood or working together in a business. And I'd observed that, you know, we all have observed that as one of the unique kind of qualities. And so armed with that insight, I was like, oh, okay, well, I know how to do one thing really well. Let's organize these trips. So let's do a trip in Russia and we'll, we'll invite Russians to come with us and we'll put them all in the same boat. And it doesn't even matter if we speak the same language, but we need to paddle together to overcome the obstacles in front of us. It seemed like a good metaphor for the time. Generals and the politicians weren't getting a very good job done. So then, you know, armed with that insight, uh, immediately ran into like 17 walls of like, no, that's impossible. No, that's impossible. And I went first to all the people I knew who had organized first descents, as they call them, you know, first time going to run a river in a faraway place um, and said, hey, I got this idea. It's a really cool idea. What do you think? The Soviet Union is this huge place, 11 time zones. There's got to be rivers all over the place. And, and again, pre-internet, you had no access to information, Ken. I mean, people forget that. Like it was just this place on a map and, but there was no information about the countryside, the mountains, the rivers, the people, what was going on outside of what you could read in a newspaper, which was generally around nuclear deterrence and enemy in the cold war. And it was, a, uh, it was a place on a map that was behind an iron curtain because it was still deeply right. a Soviet country. Exactly. So it was hidden, you know, the, you just, we just didn't know anything about it. So I went to all these, you know, people who had organized all these river trips all around the world. And they were just like, look, forget about a kid. They were all older than me. Forget about a kid. Basically they said, we've been trying for years. We can't get permission. They, they don't give permission. They're always in, you know, the, all the rivers you'd want to run are in, you know, restricted areas. And, um, you know, best to go back and 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 I but I kept thinking about it and then it struck me well here's what's different and this is a it's a cross appropriation move use a technical philosophical term <laughs> so I cross appropriated because meaning even though it was a river trip like the river trips they were trying to do this was uh, an entirely different concept Mm -hmm. This wasn't actually about the river trip. This was about putting Russians and Americans in the same boat mm -hmm. and building bonds of friendship at that kind of person to person level. So in essence, and this, you know, I know we're going to talk about blue sky later, but this is the move I have consistently made in my professional life, which is kind of a, what's called cross appropriation. So in this particular case, it's taking the, the paradigm or the, the thing of river rafting, international river rafting and applying it to a different whole world subculture. In this case, it was a subculture of, of what was called citizen diplomacy. And I didn't know anything about it until I did. But the challenge was all these international river runners were going to the Soviet Union and they were saying, we are Sobek. We are the international river runners. We're the best in the world. We want to come and conquer your rivers in mm. the Soviet Union. Right. And the Soviet Union was interested in like, how about not at all? Yeah in Americans coming to their country to conquer their rivers. And so of course, in retrospect, they were never gonna get permission to go. In contrast, 
the the idea that I and and others. So it wasn't just me. This this idea developed. I had an initial idea, and then I went to Mike Grant, and I went to Donnie Dove, and I think you were involved. There was a bunch of people that this was beer talk for a long time before it actually turned into something. But the idea had nothing to do with the first big first descent and Americans conquering right. rivers. It had all about trying to address the challenge of nuclear deterrence, bluntly, which wasn't, didn't seem like it was going to work out very well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it was like, well, what can you do as just an individual? Like, I don't know. And then it was like, well, gosh, you know, people, I have to guess that people in the Soviet Union love their children. I have to guess they're trying to figure out their lives and how to make a living and create meaning and they have families and, you know, like there's just some of these kind of common human qualities that, that go beyond culture and language and certainly above around politics. And so, and how interesting so that was the, the how, idea. How interesting it was at that time where you said you, you didn't, you thought it was the case, but as you've mentioned earlier, that it was pre-internet, it was Soviet Union, it was hidden behind layers of information that we could never access. So you really didn't know exactly what was going on over there. Uh, and you just chose to peel the layers back to try to make it work. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it was, it was really luck. And that's the other thing, the other thread <laughs> of cross appropriation has been one thread that's, <laughs> let's run through, you know, the things I've ended up doing. Uh, the other one bluntly is, is luck hmm. and timing. Um, because right about this time when we were kind of collectively thinking about this as an idea, um, they, a new leader came to power in the Soviet Union called Mikhail Gorbachev. And he started throwing around these concepts of glasnost and perestroika and which is like, you know, coming together and peace, miri, druzhba, peace and, and reconciliation. And he, he really wanted to end the Cold War. Now, a lot of it was driven by the economics. They couldn't compete economically with the engine of the United States and, mm. uh, in this kind of endless arms race. Um, but for whatever reason, politically, he he was reaching out to the West. And um, just at the same time, we were having this idea. And then I learned about this whole community of, quote unquote, citizen diplomacy people who were doing these teachers exchanges, lawyers exchanges, doctor exchanges. And then I found a woman who was doing youth exchanges, mm -hmm. high school and college age students built around climbing a mountain oh, in yeah. the Soviet Union, Mount Elbrus. Cynthia Lazarov was her name. And um, fantastic woman, brilliant woman. And, and she, she kind of took pity, <laughs> pity, pity on me. Was she I older called than her you? Up. <laughs> I called her up. I said, I got this idea mm -hmm. and I heard about you and you, you know, you're taking kids. Up to, that's exactly the kind of stuff I want to do. And, and, and she was the first person. It was really interesting. She was the first person. She listened. She asked me a couple questions. She goes, I think that's a great idea. You should do it. I was like, I'd love to. I have no idea how. And she goes, well, let me talk to the people we, we you know, uh, organize our things through. And let's see what happened from the, it was from the sports committee. Oh. And it was her, her thing. And sure enough. A month or two later, she came back from the Soviet Union and she said, I, I mentioned them and they're, they're quite interested. Right on. Here's, you know, here's the, you know, I can't even remember the telex number, really. <laughs> here's who to communicate with. And, and so this was also right on the, at the dawn of the internet. Mm. So this is literally, we had one of the early, early email addresses, but we primarily used this thing to receive and send telexes at, 
at the beginning. So armed with all this like excitement and a, and a number in the Soviet Union and, and in a sense, a sponsor the, within this Cynthia Lazaroff, um, you know, I, I called Mike Grant and, and it was off season. It was a winter. And uh, I said, hey, Mike, you know, like this thing might actually happen. He goes, that's great. I go, well, you know, we need to, we need to like get an email address so that we can send and receive telexes. He goes, okay, that's great. <laughs> and I said, so where are you? He goes, well, I'm at my mom's house. I'm like, okay, great. Well, can we, you know, you needed a phone line. Let's, let's, let's invest in a phone line. He's like, okay. So he put in a phone in his mom's closet. Right on. <laughs> and that, that was the beginning. And so, you know, we would, we would send, I'd draft something and you can only do like, it's more like Twitter, you know, you can only draft these oh, very yeah. short sentences. And of course we're in English. And so, you know, we sent off this thing, no response, sent off another one, no response, sent off another one, no response. And then all of a sudden we got one response that says, you, you and, you know, River, it was so classic, you and River experts from the United States invited to Katoon River from this date to this date. $2,000 per person, please remit money to this bank account in Moscow. End of telex. Wow. <laughs> we got this thing. Like, like, oh, yes. I got a, we, we got a response. We got an invitation. I'm like, well, what does it say? It's like, and that's all it said. And so we, we, we spent a week drafting a response of all the questions. Like, do we need to bring our own boats? Do we need to oh, do yeah. this? Do we need to do that? Da, da, da. How does this work? you know, blah, 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 you know like a million questions. Like the, it, the telex cost, you know, must've cost 20, you know, 20, $30. It was a big, long response. Send it up. We're so excited. <laughs> and then nothing. Crickets. We're, we don't hear anything. And then days for, go for by. What, days go days. by. Yeah. Day, it, yeah. It, yeah. So then we, we send it again. Crickets. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And now we're, we're, we're pushing into the winter. And this is supposed to be, as I recall, what was it, July, mm -hmm. that first trip. So we're like, this is not going to be easy to organize if, you know, we don't hear anything. Yeah. So then all of a sudden we get a response. It's like, great. Comes across on the telex. What does it say? It, they just hit resend the oh. first email. <laughs> Instructions enough. That's all it is. So yeah. I call Cynthia and I'm like, Cynthia, like, what do you know? Da, 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 da. She goes, well, you know, things are a little bit funny in the Soviet Union, but if they're inviting you, you know, it's, it's, it's probably works. So, you know, we're like, okay, well, I guess let's, let's proceed. <laughs> so that was the very first trip, Ken, that you were part of. Yeah. And I was terrified. I mean, you guys may have known this because, you know, I was asking, it was a, for all of us, I think it was two, it was $1,500 or $2,000 plus the air ticket. Yeah. This is a lot of money for river 20 guides. something, early 20 something river guides. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people wanted to go and which was great. And we had such a fantastic crew, but, Sure enough, you know, you guys all wrote your checks and we put it in the bank account. And then one day I went down to the bank and I, I even remember it was a Wells Fargo. <laughs> I think in, in, in uh, Elsa Branny's. Uh -huh. And I said, yeah, I need to transfer. It was a lot of money. $30,000, $40,000 to this bank in Moscow. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the teller just looked at me like, excuse me? I said, yeah, I need it. This is the, you know, routing number and everything. And so she said, excuse me, hold on one moment. She goes back, she gets her manager. A manager comes over asking me the same questions. I tell the same thing. Manager says, hold on. I had to go all the way up to like the branch manager. And the branch manager had to call somebody at like, you know, like they just didn't want to do it but they finally did and money goes off we just hold our breath like now what yeah because we know we got to get 
an invitation to be able to get visas and everything else. So long story short, the visa, you know, the invitation finally came. We ended up buying tickets. We, we rallied a bunch of equipment. We went over on air Finland. You remember that? Fin, yeah. Fin air. Yeah. And it was an amazing, amazing expedition that really, you know, set the stage for the rest of my uh, life. Uh, because out of that, we realized that we had all the premise that we had about people to people exchange that you could really, if you can connect at that level, it all kind of, you know, all the stuff, all the stories, all the, 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 the conflicts, they just kind of go away. Um, and it turned out that they were as eager to connect with us as we were with them in that very personal way. Yeah. So Jim, I got to tell you, as you, as you yeah. just explained that about the connection, I actually, yeah. I actually took a deep breath and it made me relax. It just, it, it was a phenomenal experience for me just now to recognize the, the power of that connection. Yeah, I, I completely, and I really see it's the same in our, you know, to kind of put this forward to our current divide in the United States politically and seemingly culturally and socially. I mean, I do a lot of work in the Midwest with Trump supporters, bluntly, they're Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the level of do you love your children? Mm-hmm. Do you need meaning and, and, and strive for meaning and some sense of like uh, that you, you have some control over your life? as I do. Yes. Basically the people I interact with, they're good people, mm-hmm. like really good people. And, and so, you know, I, I do feel like that's, that is part of the solution is somehow the stereotypes, the stories we're telling ourselves about each other, um, they melt when you actually have an opportunity to just talk yeah. to somebody. This it's, is a person, person to person. It's the story and, that we're, it's the story that we're telling each other. And it's the story that to some degree we're being told. And my example of that from the, from that first trip in Siberia was walking into the town and I, I may butcher the way this is said, but Madala Boycheskoya, which the translation was reindeer hunting village. And yeah. uh, I don't, I, I remember the, the locals. You That's pretty remember. good. That's pretty yeah. good there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the locals literally ran and hid in their cabins. They, they, you know, they saw us coming and they hid, ran and hid in their cabins. And then a few minutes later, after, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, a couple of the older gentlemen, the elders, the brave uh, community gatekeepers walked out and uh, through the translator, said, oh, you know, they understood then that we were barbarians and we came by river and we weren't aliens invading from some planet because of all the fancy river gear and the video cameras that looked like automatic, that looked like weapons, could have. Uh, But one of the older gentlemen said, oh, you're not the barbarians we were told you were. And that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so it was a profound experience, I think, for all of us. Um, but for myself, speaking for myself, in that this kind of crazy idea that connected two worlds, right? It connected the world of rafting, which I was well steeped in, but I'd observed certain qualities to these commercial trips that translated perfectly into a different world of, in this case, citizen diplomacy, and, and when that was bridged, it just set in motion. It was, you know, the, the joke was we, we have a tiger by the tail because the Soviet Union was politically, you know, opening up very, very fast, um, but it was still a very closed place. And so over the next, 
I don't know, five, six years, we spent a lot of time there. We did a lot of different programs and river trips. We did youth exchanges, we did what we called ooh, citizen exchanges. We did, um, um, I'll, I'll do that again. Hold on one second. So it didn't make this clunk. <clears throat> um, so over five or six years, we ended up doing um, youth exchanges. We did citizen exchanges. We did uh, competitions, mm -hmm. which were really, they, they were called rallies uh, built around this, this, these events that would happen all over the Soviet Union. And what really kind of made the whole glue work was not only the citizen diplomacy component, but the fact that the Soviet Union had this whole group of river runners who were non-commercial, who had been developing techniques and designing boats and doing first descents and in complete isolation from the rest of the world. Like they had no idea anybody else outside of the Soviet Union and, and you know, the Eastern Bloc was, was, you know, running rivers for fun mm. and vice versa. We had no idea that there was anybody in the Soviet Union who was doing these things. And so there was this bond among guides um, that really gave so much energy uh, to this, this whole concept. So they developed their own organization. And again, it fit the politics of the time really well. And so there was lots of press and we became kind of a poster child for, for the whole glasnost and perestroika movement. So what one learned in this is that the Margaret Mead quote actually does hold with, a, with an addendum. So the, the quote is, never doubt that a small group of committed people can make a difference. Right. The addendum is when the time is right. Yeah. And, so and it, was there yeah. a time then with that quote in mind and, and all of these experiences uh, under your belt, so to speak, was there a time where you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, I, I think we're maybe making a difference here. Um, not really till later. <laughs> I mean, there was, it was so intense, uh, you know, being a young man with no experience in running an organization, much less an international organization, all the complexities of that and, and, being gone out in the middle of nowhere for so long. There was just so many logistics and just keeping holding the tiger by the tail. There wasn't a lot of reflection bluntly on, are we really making a difference? And, you know, arguably we didn't, I mean, we were a tiny organization, relatively speaking in a, Part, which played a very small part of a very large transformation, mm. which ultimately led to the Soviet Union becoming Russia, breaking up, and, and the nuclear threat minimizing never really has gone away. And many people actually feel today it's as bad as it was. I don't know if that's true. Um, but for a moment there, it felt like, this whole, my whole young life, which had had this existential threat of nuclear war was, was lowered. Mm -hmm. And now we have an existential threat of, you know, environmental collapse and the social upheaval that would be uh, come with that, which is now my new project. <laughs> yeah. So, so before shifting onto that <laughs> yeah. and, and speaking of the tiger by the tail or maybe having a lot of balls in the air, I, I see that you're, you're still grabbing tigers by the tail. Um, but um, you said something a couple of minutes ago that you played a, a project raft may have played a very small role in a big movement. And my thought when yeah. you said that was, isn't that kind of how they almost all work where we, we all have to do something small 
to medium, maybe periodically to large in order to create gigantic change. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a fair observation. And, and I think focusing on what you have a way to contribute where you have some passion and expertise. I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I am not, a, I mean, I think I'm an active, I am an activist objectively in many areas, but I'm not a, I, I'm, I guess I'm a selfish activist in that I, I, I try and look with as much objectivity as possible at what I can do mm -hmm. and what I'm good at and what I like to do. Mm -hmm. And I try and take those, you know, skills, qualities, areas of passion and interest and apply them to activism um, versus just as you know, my, my original dilemma with the Russia thing, like I got to do something. I can't imagine going and working for a nuclear free nonprofit at that time, mm -hmm. you know, on phone calls, you know, cold calling people that just wouldn't have, I, I don't think I would have lasted very long. Mm -hmm. um, so, so in that regard, I, I think that's an important tip for folks and you, you called it selfish activism, but if you're not empowered by it, if you're not inspired by it, if it's not something that you have control over to some degree, if it's not something you can do, uh, you're, you're not going to be as forceful, right? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there, you know, there's musicians who mm -hmm. are skilled. I mean, it's kind of like, what are you good at or could you be really good at? And can you take that? Thing and 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 again, cross appropriate, bring it over, and apply it to a different different area mm. that perhaps is not normally uh, doesn't normally see those those skills. Um, so I think, a, I think a lot of times people feel uh, that it's too big that the pro the problem that they want to tackle is too big, and what difference will they make? And, and your story of Project Raft of a 20-something-year-old kid taking uh, action based on what you understood and what you felt like you could use to chip away um, at a big problem by being a small role player in that big problem, it, it, when you break it down like that, when you, when you chunk it out, uh, I, think that, I think that's another way for people to feel more hope about uh, and, and potential power about something that they can do. Yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree. And, and again, you know, if, if you like to make music, if you, if you're good at numbers, if you're passionate about video games, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. You can, I, I'm confident with a little creativity, there's a way to apply that thing. And then, then it does have sustainable you'll sustain. Like mm -hmm. I loved and still do. I love running rivers. Rivers are just, they're just part of me. I just, I just, I, I in fact, I'm planning, <laughs> I'm planning some trips as soon as things open up. I want to go to Alaska and run the Tatanchini this, mm -hmm. this summer. And, and I just love it. Always have since the first time I, I went. And so the idea of being able, and then I love traveling and I love exploring and when I was younger, I loved the kind of first descent and like, so everything about that project raft was just like right in my passion zone. So of course one will endure, mm -hmm. but what gave it meaning beyond simply just doing, you know, something fun and adventurous and, 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 and what, and whatnot. Um, was this other piece. And, and so through the whole Project Raft thing, I, I became really like experientially wrapped up in like, wow, you know, yeah, we can make, what I said earlier, we can make a difference. Like that's fascinating because I, you know, and you can be part of bigger movements. 
and you can contribute in your own unique way. If you're creative, you have to be creative. I mean, that, that is the hardest part is it's not, you know, if some, you know, I always thought like, this is such an obvious idea. So when we first had the idea to do the citizen diplomacy side of this, I was like, oh, this is such an obvious idea. Somebody <laughs> must be doing it. And nobody even considered it. Yeah. It was shocking to me. So, you know, so it does take some creative juices, but start with what you love. Yeah. And, and then, you know, this, this reminds me of a, of a story. I took a seminar somewhere in all of this when I was in my twenties and it was three days with like this, I called him the smartest man in the world. He had like four PhDs in like biology, physics, uh, psychology and philosophy. And he was talking and he basically talked for three days, mm-hmm. nonstop. Mm-hmm. And he was weaving, you know, all of history, <laughs> the philosophy of science. And it was all about kind of sustain what we call today sustainability and how human beings live in harmony with nature. And, and you know, it went on and on. You know, you'd, you'd fall asleep for, you know, a half an hour at a time and wake back up and he'd just be on basically saying the same thing that he was saying before. And it was hilarious, actually. I, I think of it in retrospect, like three solid days. I'm not kidding. Wow. So it gets to the conclusion. It's day three. And we're in like, you know, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, five o'clock in the afternoon. We've been going since 8 a.m. And it's been three solid days of this guy talking, talking, talking. And he goes, so to conclude, in summary, he looks up and he goes, do what you love. Oh my God. That was it. He said, if you want to make a difference in the world, do what you love. Because if you do it from a martyr place, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to just recreate the same bullshit that we've been going through as human beings. So it was, it was like, couldn't you kind of cut to the chase in about 45 minutes with a few slides? Yeah, yeah. Before, before day one's lunch, at least. So here's, here's my question about that. And, uh, you know, you've talked about this victim and responsible mindset. And, and basically, if you're doing what you love and, and you're doing, doing it something well enough, is it possible to come at that and still have a victim's mentality? Good question. Uh, I think so. Sure. I think, I think, cause if you think about a victim versus a, a victim mindset, so making a distinction between being a victim, hmm. in other words, having something really bad external come at you and right. victimize you right. from a victim mindset, which is really a story. It's a story we tell ourselves about either that incident, which is a very easy story that you will get a lot of probably um, agreement for, but you can also have it about big categories, government, Mm, uh, men, women, big business, the Soviet Union, the United States, it goes on and on and on, whereby it is a group or an individual out there that is doing something to you that you um, have no control over. And the emotions associated with that are generally, you know, disempowerment, anger, upset, betrayal, a lot of things that, you know, in a sense, we would, we would associate depression mm-hmm. with not such good emotions. Right. Yeah. And um, um, in contrast, you know, a responsible mindset has one where I actually am in control. I actually do make a difference. Um, you know, it tends to have 
uh, emotions associated with it much more empowering. Like, you know, I'm in control. I feel empowered. I feel like I can, you know, move forward. I feel, um, you know, good. I feel excited. I feel et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, the question is, is where in which set of emotions are you most likely to be effective? And generally speaking, in the more responsible side of things. So it's a, it's a, it's a, but it, both of them are stories. Neither of them are true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what happens, happen, again, this is as I get older and older, I just really do see, I mean, whatever, what happens, happens. And, and, and a lot of it is unpleasant and a lot of it is pleasant um, in the moment and for some time afterward. But the story we put on it really is our choice. Yeah. And, and depending on the story will directly relate to how one comports oneself in the world. Yeah. There's a, there's a saying about um, George Gerbner, who was a media expert in the fifties and sixties, I think said uh, the, he who tells the story or he who shares the narrative uh, controls a culture or, or makes or defines a culture. And you can say that about your own life and about whether or not uh, you're choosing to participate in a way that can help manifest good change. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the next stage in your life. Um, So how about if we uh, take a break here for a minute and then come back and uh, we'll talk about uh, blue sky and sustainability and uh, uh, all the different things that you're working on now. With every show, we ask our guests to share a video of them doing something fun. One of their favorite songs, a few lines from a book they enjoyed, or a scene from a great movie. Something that matches their hopes, dreams, and good work. And then we give this to you. Because laughter and beauty soothes, heals, and changes us. You can find and unwrap this gift on any of our social media sites. Thank you for participating in this podcast. Until next time, keep an eye out for change, good change, and join our movement at kenstreeter.com.